Well, first off, I just want to thank everyone so much for being here today, being able to worship with us and come before the Lord. Uh, one quick thing I wanted to kind of get into before we started today was sort of to set down some uh, expositional ground rules. And there are uh, two things that this sort of boils down to. Uh, the first thing that I want to cover is the idea of righteousness as we understand it uh, doesn't mean necessarily that you are constrained. Yes, there are some things that you can do, there are some things that you can't do, uh, but I want us to sort of reframe our understanding of righteousness, of obeying the Word of God and conforming to His character as not being something that constrains us, but instead being something that frees us up uh, to live in a way that we were truly meant to live. I don't think any of us would argue that uh, one of the most free people in the history of the human experience uh, was the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though he was perfectly conformed to the will of the Father, I think that he had a freedom that uh, none of us really have an idea of what that looks like or how it would uh, kind of work out for us. And then the second thing, um, as we're sort of defining this term as we go on uh, later through the passage today, is the idea that being blessed does not mean that you are financially well off. Uh, this idea of blessedness that I want to develop instead stems from an understanding and a relationship uh, with the covenant God of the universe. So if you would join with me um, as we pray together to get into this to understand the idea of what it means to worship the God in spirit and in truth, um, both in our habits and in our giving. Uh, so if you bow your heads with me. Uh, Father, thank you so much for being able to uh, gather today. Thank you for uh, building a church that uh, worships you, that cares for you, um, built only on the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. pray that we would be glorifying to you here today, uh, that you would guide me in what I say and help me to get out of the way uh, so your word would bring through uh, true and clear and that it would be all of you and uh, less of me. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so the topic of the sermon today is going to be the idea of the tithes and offerings that Israel brought to God um, in this period before the New Testament in, uh, when the book of Malachi was written. But I think to frame that, to frame the idea of giving back to God, we need to have an understanding of who God is and what that means in a sense of uh, his magnitude and our ability to be able to come to him uh, in worship with offerings and tithes. Um, because it's such a firm subject in the text today. So uh, I'd like to start off in uh, the eighth psalm, in the first verse it reads, um, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look to the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you should care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now I think after reading that, I think we should begin to grasp the edges of the idea that in our worship of God, we should not assume that he is a beggar at the doors of the church, poor of mind and means, asking those who worship him to complete the better part of the work of salvation. If we were to look at ourselves on a local map of Pickerington, if we pulled out Google Maps or Apple Maps, whatever your preference is, and zoom out, we would see that we are uh, but one small part of a modest city incorporated into a larger, uh, <laughs> incorporated into a larger county uh, under the government of a larger state, which is um, in turn governed by a country, which is part of a complex interweaved system of international co cooperation. 
Uh, more than ever, I think we get the idea that we are national citizens, that we are global citizens, that we are a small part of a very large machine here on earth. We are um, some 150 believers in a sea of humanity totaling over 7 billion people. Um, but even that is put to shame when you zoom out even farther, when you consider the idea that we are uh, one rock orbiting one star, which is a pinprick of light in a galaxy, which is one small part of a supercluster of galaxies. If you continue to zoom out and you see the entire observable universe that is 93 billion light years across, uh, to the point where you actually can't see the galaxy that we inhabit if you take it all in as a whole, I think we start to feel very small. Now, if Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4 is to be believed, which it is, then the God that we worship is the one to whom we owe covenant obedience, who is the maker and master of the entire observable universe and beyond. So then the command to give and not to rob God that we find today is no ordinary financial calculation made by a shoestring sovereign that's trying to make ends meet. He is not pressed for rent. He is not trying to find grocery money. He is not making us give out of a lack of his deficit, uh, but out of reverence for who he is as the omnipotent creator God that is Lord over more than we could possibly conceive of or imagine. But the Lord of hosts, the psalmist writes, is not only the creator of man, but is also mindful of him. Said another way, God is not just looking over his creation, but he's looking in on it. He has gone to the lengths to know each hair on our heads. He cares for the birds of the field and the lilies of the field. And who then are we that he should care for us? Well, if we follow the logic of Malachi, we are God's covenant people. We're preserved not because of the excellence of our ambitions or of our actions, but because he is faithful to do what he promised to do. In the beginning of Malachi, we talked about how Edom, the race that was descended from Esau, Jacob's brother, was destroyed, and Israel was only spared that because of the intervening grace and mercy of God. And then the only justification that we receive from God in Malachi, and indeed all of Scripture, as to why Israel has not been reduced and why we have not been reduced to a ruin, is because of the abiding covenantal love that God has shown in continuing to execute on his promises, that he will make Israel a royal priesthood, a holy nation that all nations will be blessed through Israel and that we get to be a consummate part of that. Now, the text reads that he does not change and therefore we are not consumed. Our station is found in his position and I would love to get, in with that. I would love to get into that with you this morning. So if you would rise as you're able uh, for the corporate reading of God's word in Malachi chapter 3 beginning in verse 6 through 12. Uh, the word of the Lord as it came to Malachi. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But when you say, how have, you, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and the vines in your field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be to God. So the idea of being an unchanging God, I think, can strike us 
when we approach this immovable, unchangeable, immutable God, and we, as changeable, finite, temporary people, begin to try and wrestle with that. The fact that God is unchangeable might be boring if it was in a human sense. If he was not infinite, we might find ourselves tired of the same old God day in and day out. But we are not writing um, a narrative or a pulp fiction novel. What we are doing is we are engaging in worship with the sovereign God of the universe. So his unchanging nature might baffle us, but we need to understand that if God is changeable or if he goes back on his word or if he develops into a new frame of thinking and thereby neglects the covenant and the children of that covenant, then those children are orphans. We would be abandoned to his temperamental whims and left adrift in the sea of our sins. But what is affirmed here in this sixth verse in the third chapter of the prophet's uh, revelation to Malachi is that God is unchangeable. Our status is relative to his position. And if he is the firm standard on which we can pin our hopes and our aspirations, our dreams and our desires, if he is the guarantee party in the covenant, then we are truly secure. But if he is surly and unknowable, if he is governed according to his whims rather than to his eternal nature, then we have no security at all. And the children of Jacob should have known this all too well. Israel should have known this all too well. Having come back from an exile in Babylon where they were teetering on the razor's edge between assimilation and destruction, when they were consumed in a vassal state of a national power that was beyond their wildest dreams. And this consumption that Malachi refers to in this sixth verse is not this idea of becoming one part of a diverse whole. It's this idea of being assimilated, of being vanished, of being destroyed. When we are talking about this word consumed, it also means finished. The idea of God being finished with Israel is similar similar to the idea that is laid out in Genesis 2.1 when it talks about how when God was laboring and making the heavens and the earth on the sixth day, he declared that his work was finished. There was nothing left and nothing left to do. So when we approach this idea of us not being consumed because God does not change, that is where all of our security comes for the next five verses going through verse 12. But in Malachi Uh, 3 verse 7 he asserts that from the days of your fathers that is the patriarchs and the beginning of the covenant of Israel you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them so while we're able to affirm that God does not change and he is faithful to his covenant because of verses like verse 3 verse 7 instead is a stinging reproof of the other party in this covenant that we are too often caught by the habits of our predecessors and while we aspire to be like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob like Moses like David all of these faithful witnesses through history to who God can be to members of his covenant we instead take after Um, the other side of the family. We behave like Lot or like Ishmael or like Esau. We choose our own pastures. We seek the fulfillment of our own ends and use the favor of God as a bargaining chip. And in choosing to turn aside from the covenant favor of God, we exchange the end for a means, and the end for which we exchange those means is not justified. When we seek our own comfort as opposed to conformity to the standard of God as laid out in Scripture, We give ourselves no end goal. We strive until we think we have enough, but then it runs out, or some tragedy hits, or some calamity befalls us, and we begin where we started. Or even in the end, if we manage to have a good life, if we manage to attain everything that we want to, and then we die and we pass on, we can't take any of it with us. It stops there. That is the period at the sentence of the human existence. So God then calls out to Israel to stop chasing after 
their own laws, their own statutes, to be reconformed to what he would call them to. He says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So then God calls us back and we are not called back to slavery, but to freedom if we believe Galatians 5 in the first verse. We are called back to continue to conform to the one that made us, that gave us purpose, that gave us a reason to strive in the beginning. So we find that in his unchanging nature, we are not stifled by it, but liberated by it. We are not condemned, but we're encouraged. So what I want to put forward to you today is that one of the best ways that I can understand this is the idea of a fish in a fishbowl sitting on your living room counter. Now, after a couple days of swimming around in the fishbowl with your castle and your pebbles and your rocks, you might begin to be bored of the idea of inhabiting the same place that you have had set aside for. You might want to flop out of the bowl, onto the kitchen counter, onto the floor, out the door, to the sidewalk, and then onto your own adventure. The issue with that, though, is that we were not created to live outside of that fishbowl. We could find the world suffocating and unwelcoming and hostile when we venture outside of the place that we were created to inhabit, namely inside the covenant faithfulness of God. An even better idea, instead of flopping out from your fishbowl onto the wide open field of the front yard, would be if you were a fish swimming in the ocean and you see a ship passing by and you decide to flop out onto the deck and now not only are you deprived of the ability to breathe underwater, you are also deprived of the vastness of that ocean that you initially inhabited. You are exchanging a greater place with more freedom and mobility for a lesser place that feels like you have made in your own designs. So when we continue to understand that when God calls us back to him as he did Israel and he says, return to me, sometimes we have chosen a home of our own design. And instead of saying, yes, I'm going to return to you, I clearly have been astray, I've been wandering, I've been wandering, I've been out where I don't belong, what we can say instead is, how am I supposed to return to a place that I already am? Israel was convinced that they were faithfully executing the covenant that God set out for them, so now the call to return seems sarcastic. When God calls them back, they say, where do we come to? It's like getting a call from your mom when you're in your teenage years, and she thinks you're out and exploring, and she's doing her own thing. And she says, hey, you need to come home now, but you're already sitting on the couch. It's the same kind of response that God gave Israel here as you would give your mother there. It's this idea of, this is where I belong, why do I need to return anywhere? So if this verse concludes with God crying out to his people, then what comes next? Well, what comes next is this idea that is so closely partnered with the idea of observing and obeying God's statutes. Um, It's the outflowing of worship from his people. They go from obeying statutes to obeying these norms in tithes and contributions and offerings. Uh, It says, well, man, rob God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? in your tithes and contributions. So now having moved on from the earlier place in the book where it talks about how the priests and the priesthood have made specific infractions against the God of Israel for not obeying his covenant faithfulness in the way that his temple is um, sort of managed and overseen to the offerings that they're offering not being up to the sufficient standard, God now makes a more general rebuke that can apply to the rest of Israel. So we've gone from a very specific case from the leadership of Israel out to the general population that has still been unfaithful. Yes, they've been led astray by the priests, as we talked about um, a few weeks ago, but this impetus for God's rebuke still falls on them. This is still their shortcoming. And now we need to understand that God's problem with them not offering tithes and offerings is specific to that, but not totally encompassed by that. Because God cares holistically about a person's relationship to him. You can think of it sort of as 
um, your wallet being the barometer for your heart. It's going to take your temperature, it's going to tell you where you're at because your resources are so often dedicated towards what you care about. So for those who are new to Christian circles, um, a tithe means one-tenth or ten percent, um, and it was sort of set up in the Old Testament as the traditional amount that people would set aside as an offering for God to support the priesthood, and uh, it might seem like a burdensome requirement at first. It might seem like a lot to give up um, to the God that is calling you to keep covenant with him, but it's fair to remember at this point what we talked about at the beginning of our time together. God is not overstepping his bounds if he is boundless. God is not asking too much if he gave you everything in the first place. And it's worth mentioning again that we do not give because God is lacking in resources, but because we are lacking trust in his provision. And tithing and offering and sacrificing is a way by which we reinforce that dependence on him. By making these continued offerings, Israel demonstrates that the heart of faith that they have in God that delivered them from Egypt and now from Babylon, uh, should be a marvelous example of God's faith, or their faith in God over kingdoms of man, but instead Israel continues to be lackluster and apathetic, and their giving continues to decrease. The spiritual pressure in their lives has fallen, and the barometer is impacted as well. One of my favorite authors, theologians, Dallas Willard, once wrote that, while sacrifice may seem more of a service, it's always more of a discipline. Our need to give is greater than God's need to receive because he is always well-supplied. But how nourishing in response to our sacrifices are the gifts of God. The cautious faith that never saws off the limb on which it is sitting never learns that the unattached limb may find strange and unaccountable ways of not falling. If we worship a God that is bigger than the universe, then we should not be surprised when he is able to overcome the difficulties of our finances. And what is the result of not offering these offerings in a way that is consistent with what God's character is calling for? Malachi 3.9 says that you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, at a very basic level, uh, a blessing is something that you would give someone for their good health and fortune, and a curse is something that you would give to them um, sort of as a detriment to that. So what God is saying here in verse 9 is basically that you not doing this and robbing me is bad for your health. And I want us to understand that in our financial lives that frugality is not stinginess and modesty is not miserliness. We can be both financially responsible and spiritually faithful. The place to tighten down the corners of your budget is not in your devotion because the crux of the Christian life is allowing the preeminence of God to take center stage in your life, both in your actions and in your finances. Both in your doctrine, in your orthodoxy, and in your practices, your orthopraxy. Those things go together, and that's why they're paired so closely here in the third chapter of Malachi. So now having noted that it'd be a curse to rob God, he encourages the nation of Israel to bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there might be food in the house of the Lord. Now we've talked earlier on in the book of Malachi about how the offerings that are expected now of the Christian church are probably greater than what was expected of Israel. While once we were expected to sacrifice animals and burnt offerings and drink offerings and all these other kind of uh, sort of ceremonial sacrifices that were outlined in the Old Testament, now we are called to make our lives a living sacrifice to God. And part of our lives is our finances. In the New Testament parallel to this sort of chapter in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-7, through 7, Paul is regaling the Corinthian church with the story of the Macedonian church that was supporting him in his mission to share the gospel in that first century after the death of Christ. And he calls them to excel in this virtue of generosity as it benefits the church and the mission of the Lord. 
among the things that Israel, or that the church is called to excel at, is faith in seasoned speech that benefits the body, in knowledge, and in love. So if our generosity and if our offerings is grouped in with the idea of faith and knowledge and love, how many of you are content to only be improved in those things to such a degree? How many of you are content with only being so faithful, only being so knowledgeable about the God that you serve, and only being so loving towards him and your fellow man? Would you settle for anything less in your devotion in those areas? And if not, then why would you settle for anything less in this area where we are giving back to God what he has given to us? So we have this exhortation to bring in the full offering, and it comes with this idea that Israel, again, has been apathetic that they are putting on a show, that they are giving maybe 5% or 6% or 2%, but they aren't bringing in the full offering that has been required from God to his people. And this appears to be, in the second half of the verse, a clear exception to an earlier part of God's law. In Malachi uh, 3.10, the second half of the verse, he says, And thereby, by giving these offerings and bringing in your tithe, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So if you're the acute Bible scholar that I know you are, you might be asking, well, okay, then why does God tell us not to test him in Deuteronomy 6.16 and then to test him here in Malachi 3.10? Well, the answer to that is because God is referencing something earlier on in the story of Israel in the Old Testament in Exodus 17, where having been led out of one of the greatest superpowers on earth at that time through a Red Sea that was parted by a pillar of cloud in the morning and a pillar of fire in the evening, Israel is still unconvinced that God is going to keep his promises to deliver them. God is still delivering on that promise, but Israel does not appear to see it, which is why I want to get into the idea of testing God versus testing God. And if you've ever had a really incredible teacher, you'll know that both the great teachers and the terrible teachers test their students. A really good teacher should be administering questions and tests and examinations to their students to understand that they have fulfilled the material, that they understand where this course is going and that they're tracking with it. And a teacher that is maybe less proficient in their job might just test their patience, might just test their ability to sit down and listen to a class and be derided and ridiculed and abused by a manner of intellectual dishonesty where the teacher expects that they should already get it. Now here in Malachi, God is telling Israel to see if he won't fulfill his promises. God has laid out and said, this is what I'm going to do. Go ahead and hold me accountable to that. In Exodus 17, Israel is saying, I see that you've been doing this, and now we're here, and I don't think you're going to do it anymore. One was coming out of a place of doubt, and the other should be coming from a place of surety, like you would test sort of a chair that you're sitting in. Now, if I sat down and put my weight on the stool, I would be testing it to see if it held me, but I would be doing it with the expectation that it would. That was not the case for Israel here um, in the time right after the exile. So now God has not only made a promise to deliver a blessing to Israel, but also to protect them from any calamity. In Malachi verse 11 in chapter 3, he says that he will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine and the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And God does not only make a promise here concerning provision in the positive aspect, but also protection from a negative aspect. He promises not only rain, which is opening the doors of heaven in verse 10, but also protection from parasites that destroy and consume that which he has provided. So not only will he make the crops grow, he will also stop the groves from eating them. And now, it is one thing to promise provision for a people or a person or a family member, but how much greater of a promise is it 
that you would ensure that no harm or adversity would befall that person or family member or friend. Because it's a natural paternal thing to want to provide for your children in a way to make sure that they are clothed and fed and cared for. But it is another thing, and frankly, if we're speaking in human terms, a lie to say that you will make sure that nothing bad ever happens to them. You would be beyond your means as a human to say that you're never going to get sick, you're never going to be heartbroken, you're never going to be taken advantage of, you're never going to be led astray. We can't guarantee that. But God is saying here that not only will he bless his people, but he will protect his people if only they would be faithful to the covenant. If only they would do what he has called them to do so that he can love them in a way that rewards that faithfulness. Now, this is a point where a lot of preaching of the gospel can kind of go astray because we begin to think of God as a transactional God. We begin to think, oh, if I give God X and Y, he'll give me A and B. Or if I do this, he'll do that. And as long as I stay within the lines, I can game the system to make sure that I get exactly what I want and nothing that I don't. That's not the way that you need to think about it. The reason that we tithe, the reason that we give 10%, and the reason that it's our first fruits, the thing that we get first, is because if we trust God completely with, 90, with 10%, we can trust him implicitly with the other 10 we begin to understand that God is not only concerned with the physical aspect of our lives. Neither is he only concerned with the physical, with the spiritual. Because if he only wanted us to be spiritual creatures and only intended to take care of us on a spiritual scale, then he wouldn't have given us physical bodies. He wouldn't have given us a physical experience. But also, we see overwhelmingly through Scripture that we did not need a physical Messiah in the New Testament. God took on flesh to atone for a spiritual impact that was affecting the rest of our lives. So what I want to communicate to you today is that while God is primarily concerned with the spiritual renovation of his people, that comes with a physical payoff and a physical consequence. Because God is not so emasculated as to be only able to affect our spiritual lives. Nor is he only short-sighted enough to only be able to benefit our physical lives. And this culminates in the 12th verse of this third chapter where it says, Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now in this closing verse, Malachi paints a picture of a faithful Israel. Having brought in their tithes and offerings, God will both bless them and protect them. And not only that, but they will be taken notice of by other nations. Now I don't think that all nations would be noticing and calling Israel blessed if this was just a physical blessing. If they just had a bunch of bumper crops for a good year, back to back, like yeah, it might be a good farm ground, it might be a good place to move in, raise kids, do the family thing, but I don't think it'd be something that all nations would be calling them blessed. I think this is actually a reference back to the covenant that God made with Abraham, that through him all nations would be blessed. Namely, that the Messiah, that Jesus Christ, would come to make amends for this sinful, apathetic people that have gone astray. That in calling them back, he would be sending Jesus out to bring them home. And I think it's prudent right now to redefine this idea of what blessedness means. It's this idea that has been thrown around a lot and maligned by so many of today's modern prosperity gospel preachers that it can make God an end to a means of our own physical comfort and fulfillment. But I would argue today that the end of our physical comfort and fulfillment is to give us one more thing to praise God about that he has seen fit to bestow us on. It is supposed to be a physical instrument that draws us into spiritual maturity. One of the proof texts that I've always gone to to understand what it means to be blessed is the first eight verses of the 119th Psalm. It reads, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. 
You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. And I think this is all getting at the idea that being faithful now should always take priority over being prosperous later. If you are just trying to donate to God, if you are just trying to make an investment to get your money back and to be benefited, you don't need the gospel, you need a stockbroker. There are better ways to make money than to give to the church. And if that's all that you're here for, I would encourage you to look somewhere else. But if you're looking for a life transformation, if you're looking for a change that can make an impact that echoes through eternity, if you're looking to understand the eternal God of the universe that created you and everything in it, I would encourage you to stick around. And I would encourage you to be faithful to that call that God has made to recognize him as the preeminent Lord of the universe. I want us to be challenged to extend our categories of what it means to be blessed. Not so that we can lower the bar and delude ourselves as to what it actually means to live a blessed life, but to understand that faithfulness in and of itself is a blessing to be thankful for. To understand that living life in community with the God that created you and cares for you and loves you perfectly is an end unto itself. And while that blessing may manifest in a physical way, that is not the goal. It is something to pay forward to in spiritual reverence and worship. As I talked about in the beginning of our time together this morning, it is no small thing that we worship a God that is in no way small. It gives us a frame to think about ourselves in and that we should ultimately find not only our identity but also our security in him so that when giving these tithes and offerings, it is not a thought of if we're going to make it to the next day because that is God's concern to handle. We can't see into the future, we can't peer into our crystal ball and make things happen, but we do believe that there is a God that cares for us and is powerful enough to make a way for us. So I want to thank you so much for uh, your time here this morning. I want to thank you so much for uh, being part of a church that is earnestly seeking uh, to strive after what God has set out for us in the gospel, um, which I believe the ultimate blessing, the ultimate manifestation of that is our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you would pray with me, I'd love to conclude our time here together. Father, thank you so much for being a God that is worth pursuing. Thank you so much for being a God that knows um, both the extents of the universe and the intricacies of our hearts. I pray that you would continue to be with us, to shape us, to mold us, to care for us in a way that is um, both encouraging um, but also scary in some ways. I pray that we would step out in faith. I pray that we would step out in an understanding of what it means to follow and serve you. Help us do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.